So we are in part 12 of our First Corinthians series, and we are going to be covering all of chapter 8 today in our short amount of time, and so if we go a few minutes over, uh, just prepare for that, merely because we can't cram too much in all at the same time without some spoilage there. So let's start with some thoughts. I entitled this morning's message, Faithful Not to Offend, and I want to begin with uh, some simplistic thoughts. Uh, there are folks in this room that are black and white thinkers. You all know who you are. You see the world as rather crystal clear. There's right and wrong, and there's not a lot of in-between. Uh, you see things as obvious. You would say, well, clearly, people need to know what they're doing. They can't do that. They need to be doing that. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says not to do. Uh, and for you, the world is neatly divided into two categories. Then there are other folks in this room. I happen to be one of them, maybe the chief that sees the world in gray. Uh, everything is a gradient, a shade. Uh, there is very little black and white other than crucial issues of Scripture. And then all the rest tends to fill in with, well, it's a little bit like this, and it depends on this situation, and it depends on, on this environment. And I'm that guy sees the world in gray. Now, if we're going to look at all that across the board, we're now in church, so we end up spiritualizing that. And let me ask you this, which one is God? Is God more black and white? Is God more gray? Now, as being a gray guy, I would love to say that, that God is gray. God is not. God is black and white. Why? Because he has all the information. He has all the pieces. He's the one that created it. He's the one that designed it. There is no fuzzy areas for God. He knows exactly what you need to be doing. He knows exactly how he has designed you. He knows exactly where to hold you accountable. And he knows exactly where to encourage you. He knows everything going on in the world situation. There is nothing outside of his grasp. There's nowhere that he cannot reach. He is very clear. The second problem is how ought we to be because we are not God. Well, we could say maybe... The black and white folks need to realize that the world is a little messier than they think. And I'd like you to slide back towards the middle. Those of you that are gray like me, how much has our grayness blinded us to that which God has truly laid out as right and wrong? And we just don't want to look at it because of our level of compassion. I think we need to slide back towards the middle. But regardless of where you stand... The fill in the blank is true. At some point, we need to mature to the place, whether we're black and white or we are gray thinkers, this phrase, not everyone sees the world like you do. Not everyone sees the world like you do. I get it works for you. I get your worldview is cohesive. I get that it all seems to work in line. However, I don't see it like you do. You don't see it like I do. So what, we, what should we do then? What ought we to do with this information? I would say that we must always continually grow and seek understanding. We have to listen to other people's experiences, their stories, their testimonies, their perspectives. Living in modern day America, you are hyper limited in your viewpoints. You have a very closed system. You believe that the rest of the world is like us. They are not. If you look at the news, you begin to realize that all over the world, things are very, very different. If you ever do any travel, your eyes are opened up. If you ever do missions, your eyes are opened up even further. 
that not everyone sees things the way that we do. Solomon, when visited by God just before he was about to become the most powerful man in the Middle East, as a young man was asked by God, so what do you want? You got this new job. You're about to have a lot of weight upon you. What do you want? Now, some of us would have said, well, my number one threat is that we are surrounded by enemies that are waiting for my dad to die, and he's a, they're about to take us out. So, God, if you would only rain down fire and burn them all up, that'd be awesome. That is not what he prayed. What he asked for was wisdom and understanding. God said, because you sought that, indeed, I will give you more. But you asked for the right things. Later on, when writing down in Proverbs, he said, I want you to seek wisdom because it's more important than gold, and I want you to seek understanding because it's more important than silver. He continued to dialogue when issuing out advice in Proverbs chapter 2, 1 through 6, he said this, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice, For understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Now, once you realize that other people are in other places than you, your eyes may well open to the idea that your tools don't work on their projects. What do I mean? I mean that many people will be asking you advice. Many of you will insert advice without being asked. And somebody says, I'm going through a problem in my life. I'm really having a hard time with doubt. And they're a new seeker, a new believer. You're a seasoned veteran, right? And so you say something ignorant like, you just need to pray more. Uh, And the reason why you say that is because that's what works for you. That is the tools that you need to utilize because your project needs more prayer. What they needed was something different. They may well have needed tools such as, well, you know what? Have we started opening up some key scriptures and allowing you to feel an assurance of who God is? Have you maybe sought to join a small group? Now, you're way past that, right? You don't need to do that stuff anymore. You just need to blow past it, and all you need to do is do what God has asked you to do, which is to pray. And yet, they don't need your tools. Your tools don't work in their project. You need to give them the tools that work where they're at. We must have enough understanding to realize not everybody's world is occurring the same way. Indeed, I believe this, that the key to good godly leadership is to lead people from where they are to where they need to be, not from where you want them to be to where they need to be. Amen? Let's open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, page 956 in the Bibles that we have for you here. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. What we're going to do is read through the chapter. I'll pray for it. And then we will do our best to dive through it, tear it apart as rapidly as possible. Here we go. Paul said this, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. 
Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat. We're no better off if we do, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. That's a lot of responsibility. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for letting us walk afresh through your word. Uh, Holy Spirit, we do not understand unless you illuminate it to us, unless you spiritually gift us to see what you want us to see. I pray against distractions, both in my mind and the hearts of those listening. I pray, Lord, that we might be able to lock in and apply this to our lives right here, right now, that we would leave different than we walked in. Change us in your name. Amen. All right, let's do this. Go back to verse one. First line, a little complicated. Now concerning food offered to idols, pause. Do you have a big problem with that? Is that going on in your world? You got a lot of food offered to idols happening in Lincoln, right? I can only speak for Folsom uh, where I live and there's not a lot of food offered to idols out there. Uh, maybe it's more of a Roseville issue. I don't really know. I don't know, but what, what, are the, what do they mean by food offered to idols? Well, back then it was a massive deal. As a matter of fact, the first Jerusalem council addressed this issue. They addressed a whole bunch of stuff and they were talking about Gentile believers. And they said, you know what, you guys, I need you to refrain from eating food offered to idols. So what is food offered to idols? Well, simply put, the Greco-Roman ancient world that Paul is talking to was inundated with Gods, goddesses, demigods, temples, it was their society, it was their world. If you go over there now to go for a visit, maybe through Turkey or Greece, uh, and you look through uh, some of the ancient ruin stuff, what you're going to find is they say, those are the ruins for the temple to Artemis, those are the ruins to the temple of Hermes, those are the temple of Eros, those are the temple of Ares, right? Uh, and, and it goes on and on and on. They had the god of war, the god of love, the goddess of this, the goddess of that. There was gods and goddesses everywhere. And so their entire society took place in temples. But in doing so, there was a lot of activities that went on that had ramifications for everybody else. And one of the things was that they would, very, in a very similar fashion, though not exact, in a very similar fashion, they would offer food sacrifices, animal sacrifices to their God to appease them. And they would divide it out very similar to what they did in Israel. What they would do is they would give a portion to the God 
And that part, because God doesn't, their gods don't necessarily eat meat, right? They're not real, that they would burn it up. So you burn it up and that part's gone. Then you have two other pieces, the large pieces. One of the large pieces you would give to the family who was supposed to go make a meal in honor of that God. They were supposed to have a feast. Invite all their friends and family. And then there was a portion that was given back to the priests. Now, you can imagine if the priest is doing hundreds of these throughout the week, that's a lot of meat, right? How much steak can you really eat? So what they would do is they would then say, I don't need all that. I'm going to go ahead and sell that. They would sell it in the idle meat marketplace. Now, not in the general marketplace. Meat was already expensive. If you go over there, it's really expensive. If you eat meat offered to idols, it was cheaper. The early church was very poor. A lot of them were slaves. A lot of them were poor. And they needed the cheaper meat if they were going to eat meat at all. So they were very tempted to go buy it there. But it wasn't just that. Every significant event that happened in someone's life, marriage, new child, graduation, all those were housed in the temple. So you were being asked to attend an event, a feast with something to do with meat offered to idols, probably three, four days a week. It was a constant concern. Now, one other issue that one commentary brought up was that they believed that there were demons in the air and the demons in the air would adhere themselves to meat so that it would be ingested by people and they could demon possess them. Now, that's weird, right? Are we all tracking on that, that you got demon meat? That's bizarre, right? And they believed that if they offered the meat to their God first, the God would chase out the bad demons, the bad evil, and then they could eat it with it being cleaned, Now, regardless of whether or not this is true or not, that was the view at the time. And so all of a sudden, the early church was faced with what do we do with demon meat? Do we eat demon meat? Are we going to get demons in us? What's going to happen? I mean, if I'm eating this stuff, am I dishonoring God? Is God mad at me? Is he thinking, what are you eating that for? Right. And so there was this big idea of what do we do with it all? So Paul said, well, let me address that for you. So he moves on. He said, now, we know that all of us possess knowledge. You'll notice that in your Bible, in the ESV, it's in quotes. We all possess this knowledge. What basically you're going to find out is that Corinth, the church there, really was arrogant. As a matter of fact, in the addressing of this church, Paul has to address them seven times about being arrogant. What is so funny about it is they thought they knew everything. The great irony is they've only been around for five years. Really? In five years, you know everything? Oh, you got it all nailed down. You know all this stuff. They were so sure. I mean, if you think about who's been training them, Paul set up their church, stayed with them, and got the church started. Apollos came in, one of the greatest teachers of all time, discipled them. And then Timothy was going to go on over and help them out as well. If you have basically the biggest dogs of all Christianity teaching and training them, yeah, they probably think they're pretty solid but they don't know everything. He said, you know what? I understand that y'all think that you possess knowledge. However, your knowledge, all it's doing is puffing you up. It's not making you better. It's just making you have a bigger head. But love builds up. You are highly mature in knowledge. You are very immature in love. And that's a problem. Sounds a lot like Pharisees, right? All right. 
If anyone imagines that he knows something, meaning you know everything about it, boy, you're good at this. You have everything nailed down in scripture. Let me just tell you, he does not yet know as he ought to know. You don't even know what you're talking about. But if anyone loves God, that's what we're really chasing for. Then he is known by God, which is all that really matters. Now then, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols. Now we know that an idol has no real existence. How do they know that? Because it's in the Bible, right? Do you realize that the little idols that they made, the stuff that they would shape out of gold, silver, stone, wood, they would make these little idols and they would pray to them and that would be like their protection piece, their amulet of power, right? Now we know, I would hope, the majority of us know, there's no benefit to that. That thing's not alive. It's not going to help you. But how do you truly know that it's not legitimate? Well, I know this because the Bible tells me. Where does the Bible tell you that? Well, there's three massive passages. There's Isaiah 44, Psalm 115, and Psalm 135. What do they say? They say it's bogus. No, the little statue is not empowered by a God. It's not a God. You can't make a God. That doesn't work that way. He said, we also know, quote, there is no God but one. How do they know that? Oh, I don't know. Maybe the Jews have been saying it three times a day forever. That's the Shema, right? Hero Israel, our God, Yahweh is one. They know that. That's burned into us. We know that information. So if idols are nothing, if there's no such thing as uh, gods being in idols, and if God is only one, then what are we really worried about? For although there may be so-called gods, so-called, obviously there's mythology and everybody has their idea and they really believe it kind of stuff in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many quote unquote gods and many masters or lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Have you locked that down in your mind? One God, three persons, right? You know that. You've got to memorize that. The Trinity is taught in Scripture. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three comprise Yahweh, the God of Israel. The three compose one God. Three persons, one God. We know that. We lock that down. He describes it by saying that there is one God, the Father from whom are all things for whom we exist. The one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, through whom we exist. Remember, the way that creation worked is that the Father spoke. The word that emanated out was Jesus Christ, and the power that locked it in was the Holy Spirit. We know that. It's why our reality is reality. So let me ask you a question here. Are there really other gods? Are there other powers out there? Are there other gods that challenge God? If you go into another country, a lot of our missionaries are running into this all over the place. What do we do with all this voodoo stuff, the witchcraft stuff, the Wicca stuff, the Satanism stuff? What do we do when you go over to Africa and they refer to other gods and things like that? Are there really other gods? Are there other spiritual beings? What do we do with those questions? Well, first of all, let's define God. If we're going to throw out the word God, what do we mean by God? God means deity. It means an uncaused cause, an eternal being. And we use words of God such as omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. That is what God is. Are there many of those? 
There are not. There is but one. If there is one uncaused cause, everything else has a cause. That means everything else is created. Therefore, they are not God. They may be something, but they are not God. So there are not many gods. Are there beings higher than men? Yeah, there actually are a lot of those. How do we know? Because in the Bible, every once in a while, they pull the curtain back and you go, oh my gosh, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on that I'm not even seeing, right? Angels, demons, cherubim, seraphim. You think that's all of them? Of course not. That is merely a sampling that the Bible gives you that the air, our reality, our dimension, whatever you say, is consistently invaded and consistently full and moving about that there's a whole world going on even while we sit here, even while we study here, even while we learn here, there is a whole nother world coursing through another dimension that is crisscrossing into ours of spiritual beings. Are they greater than mankind? Yes, indeed they are. Does that make them gods? It does not. What does Lord mean? I defined it earlier. It means what? Master. Are there many masters in the world? Absolutely. I would say every one of us, every human being in the world has numerous masters. Why? Whatever you bow down to, that's your master. What is it? Body image? Is it materialism? Is it sexuality? Is it, well, I mean, what do you want to, how do we want to play this, right? Not only that, but are there other things? Are there other beings? Are there demonic? Are there, is Satan out there? Are these other people that are worshiping angels, are they not creating those people, those things, those beings to be lords? Indeed they are. But for us, we have but one master. At least we're supposed to have one master. Uh, God, God said through his son, Jesus Christ, man cannot serve two masters. Remember? And he actually said one of them was what? Money. Stuff. Right? So, yeah, there are a lot of lords out there, but for us there is one. Throughout mankind, there have always been fashioned items where people wanted to protect them because we have always sought to control our gods. We want to be able to take them off the mantle and use them for superpower. Or if we feel like something bad is happening, we want to get the bad mojo off us. Right? You know what's sad about all that? We do it to God all the time. If you've ever been in a difficult situation, you said, God, if you only get me through this, I will serve you for the rest of my life. What were you doing? You're playing him. You're trying to manipulate him. You're trying to utilize him as a mantle God. You're trying to take him off and say, I need you right now. I really need you to get behind me. I really need you to give me this. Give me a supercharge, right? Like nitro in your car, right? And then you think something bad. I got some, some bad heebie-jeebies on me, right? I got, I got something that's bugging me. I, mean, there, I must be cursed. And so we do these things and try to appease God and make him happy so he'll stop hurting us. Do you understand how pagan this sounds? But we're doing it all the time. That's not the God of the Bible. Even this fasting thing we're doing for the healing and worship night, right? How many of us have tried to use that like pagan worship? God, I'm fasting. That means you better work on my side, right? I'm doing something serious for you. Come on, I'm earning it here, right? You know how much I wanted to eat dessert last week? You know, Lord, right? You owe me on this one, man. So I ask you, are there gods and stuff? Are they there? Are they not there? Let me ask you a question about physical objects. Let's say 
um, and I've had this experience actually more than once, um, that uh, you're ministering to somebody who comes out of Satanism or comes out of witchcraft, and they say, hey, these are my amulets and my... Um, uh, uh, my my staff, my this, my that, right? They have all these different paraphernalia, and they hand it to you, and they say, here, do something with that. What are you going to do with it? Are those things possessed, right? What are you going to do with them? Well, you're probably going to, if you're smart, you're probably going to burn them. Now, why are you going to burn them? Uh, is, is it really that the demon has inhabited the little crystal? Mm, probably not. Are they there or are they not there? Well, here's the way I would look at it. If you are a demon, which, by the way, there is no such thing as ghosts, departed spirits. You have demons. You have spiritual beings. They're either for God or against God. Those are your only options. But are they coursing around, and are they going to utilize this stuff? <laughs> Absolutely. If you believe that this little thing is a god, guess what the demon's going to do? He's going to make it look exactly like that. He's going to play it up as much as possible. Why? Because you're ultimately bowing down to him. So he's going to go, yeah, look at it. Oh, don't touch that thing. Don't touch that thing. I'm all over it. I'm all over it, right? And he's going to go, you got to use this for the power, right? And he's manipulating you. So is it really there? Is there really? Yeah, there's demonic powers going on in the world. Absolutely. Do we need to stay away from that? Yeah, sure we do. But ultimately, does it make a crystal bad or good because it's just a piece of rock? No. But you think the demons are going to use it? Sure they are. Why wouldn't they? Our perception controls reality. That's one of the things I've talked about since day one, right? How do we know? Consider anyone that's that's afraid of flying. Is your fear of flying truly dictating whether the plane is safe or not? It's obviously not. Why? Because there's a whole bunch of people that are sitting next to you that are not afraid of flying. Is that dictating whether the plane is safe or not? Aren't you canceling each other out? Right? But yet our perception is that it is unsafe and we are literally living as if that is so. We created a whole reality. Weird. Let's go back. If indeed that is true, that there is one God and that there is no such thing as other gods and meat is not really possessed, and, but really demons are trying to utilize it, we go back to the question, right? What do we do with the demon meat? Is it cool to eat? Is it not cool to eat? Is God mad about it? He said, you know what? Even though we have our facts right, one God, no other gods, not all possess this knowledge. Verse 7, most of us spend the vast majority of our time trying to make sure that we know what is right and wrong in the Bible and whether or not it is right or wrong for us. Sounds legit. Sounds good. Problem is you haven't asked the next question. Now what? What about everyone else? Right? We automatically think that what's good or bad for us is good or bad for everybody else. He said, you know what? Not everybody knows what you know. You may be able to look around in the church and go, look at all you wimps. Right? I mean, I got freedom in Jesus. I can do this. I can do that. I can do this. I can do that. You know what? Because I know it's legitimate in Scripture. And you look at everybody else that doesn't feel like that's okay. They feel that's a sin. And you go, man, grow up. And you have no patience for them. That's what was going on. He said, I need you to remind, remind you that not everybody sees it like that. Some, through former association with idols, people that came out of a pagan background, when they eat this food, they really believe that it was offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, not fully developed, is defiled. It is tainted, distorted. 
and they end up embracing something they think is wrong because they think they should be better than that. Listen, we know food will not commend us to God. We're not going to be approved by God. We're not going to get closer to God based on what we eat. We're no worse off if we do not eat. We're no better off than we do. But their conscience is being disrupted. What is a conscience? Right? Famous question by the philosopher Pinocchio. Everybody remember him? Are you my conscience? Do you remember that? And it's a cricket, right? A conscience is an alarm clock. It's your moral alarm clock. It does not mean it's accurate. It means it's what you have set from your experiences and knowledge for something to go off when it says right or wrong. It can be broken, right? I mean, think about it. If you, your alarm clock irritates you so often that you slam it with a hammer, not going to go off tomorrow. You just broke it. In the same way, your conscience can be altered, scarred, marred, whatever it is, right? But, it's, but their alarm clock is being distorted by your freedom. See, facts are not the end of the situation. There's more to it. Man, you guys should see the world like this. The Bible clearly says this. I understand what your problem is. You missed something. You stuck with facts and forgot love. Whoops. What is safe for one is not safe for another. You need to understand that. You go, but I have freedom there. Praise God you have freedom there. I don't. You guys, I have never had a problem with alcohol in my entire life. I have never been around alcoholism from someone in my family. I have always had everything done with alcohol in moderation all the way around me. I have no hang-ups, but a lot of my buddies do. And you know what's completely cool for me? I could walk into a bar, I could have one drink, I could go out, and I don't even think about it twice. It's no big deal. They can't get near the place. Why? Because what's right for me is not right for them. I'm in a different place. My projects are in a different place than them. I got temptations that they don't even have. So for them, it's completely legit. For me, it's a stumbling block. We got to watch that. That's a love issue. It's not a facts issue. I love this quote. Warren Wiersbe said, you cannot force feed immature believers and transform them into giants. Just guilting your friends doesn't make them more mature. Um, I'll use one last analogy. Is Halloween good or bad? We're coming up on it, right? October 31st. Is Halloween good or bad? Well, it's funny because it all depends on who you talk to, right? Uh, For the people that think it's relatively bad, they call it harvest. You know who they are, right? By the way, harvest is Halloween. Just thought I'd let you know that. Um, So is is it good or bad? Well, in my house, with my kids, it is one of the only times of the year that you're allowed to dress up like a complete dork. Um, it is all about candy. It's all about hanging with your friends. It's about trick-or-treating. It's about laughing and joking. It's about screwing around. It's just family time. But Pastor Mark and I went to a spiritual warfare class with a gentleman in seminary who he and his wife took in a gal who was raised in satanic abuse. She was in a satanic cult. And every Halloween, the cult tried to kidnap her. 
for year after year after year, they would attack her and try to find a way. They'd leave things on their doorstep. They would literally try to kidnap her physically and take her away. That was their high holy day. That was the day that they believed was more power. And so they would do an all-out assault. They would try to destroy her. Now you tell me, is Halloween fun? Not for her. To me, no big deal. To her, huge deal, right? So is Halloween good or bad? Depends on who you're talking to. Depends on who you ask, right? Let's pick it up and let's close it out. Verse 9. Take care that this right of yours, because everybody's about their rights. By the way, anyone that ever argues about their rights to me or constantly talks about their rights, I know immediately they're immature. Because rights... uh, that's not the end of the story. That's only the beginning of the story. Do you have a right to do it? Well, that's a great first part. The problem is, is once you keep talking about it, I know you haven't moved to the second part, which is if I do have rights, what do I then do with it out of love? Right? But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone, now likely this is a new Gentile wandering around the complex of the temple, sees you, somebody more mature than them in the Lord, in the church, they see you, who have knowledge, right? You know that it doesn't matter whether or not you eat demon meat because there's no such thing as demon meat, right? So you're there eating in the idol's temple. Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? He's doing what you're doing. You're leading him. You're doing something that he's going to go, well, you know what? Even though it feels weird to me, if that person who's more mature in the church can do it, I should be able to do it. It shouldn't be a big deal. Even though I feel like it is, I I, I shouldn't. And so I'm going to do it anyway. And so by your knowledge, this weak person has destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Are we crushing other people with our, li- our liberties? Are we hampering other people by our limitations? Here's the thing that drives me crazy. People that have a liberty think that everyone should have that liberty. And people that have a restriction think everybody should have that restriction. That drives me crazy. God has told me, you know what, that I really shouldn't be, uh, I really can't be around alcohol. You know what, I understand there's not a lot of teaching about it against, but I just know that it's wrong and everything. And then they go around hunting everyone else down and telling them what to drink and what not to drink. That's your limitation. Get off everybody else. God told you, and guess what? If you violate that, God's ticked off. What are you doing? I told you, we're not doing that. Therefore, it's a contract between you and me. Don't give everyone else my mail. That's for you. And then on our freedoms, we're like, man, we can do whatever we want. And so we're the ones pulling all the alcohol out when we go on a camping trip, not even realizing where the other guys are. Totally unfair because they should be able to handle it. Well, you should grow up. Right? Pick it up, verse 12. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. You hurt Jesus. Well, no, I didn't. Yeah, you did. How does Paul know that? Oh, it was the way he became a Christian. You remember that? In Acts, he told this story three times. He said, I was on the road to Damascus. I was about to go beat up a bunch of Christians. And all of a sudden, a brig bright light makes me blind. And I hear a voice and it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? You, who are you, Lord? You don't even know me. That's our problem. When you hurt my children, you hurt me. Paul already got busted for this. You think he's not going to point this out to everybody else? When you hurt someone else, guess who you're hurting, right? I was making the joke last night that if somebody comes up 
and they knife you in the arm and you go, you stabbed me. No, I didn't. I stabbed your arm. Dude, you stabbed me. No, I didn't. I stabbed your arm. Okay, that's me. So whatever we do and however we act around each other, when we're slandering each other, guess who we're slandering? Jesus. All right, last one. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'm not going to eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. I don't want to do that, so I'm going to go beyond my rights. I'm going to figure out what's loving. That's where my heart is going to rest. Let's close this thing out. We tend to fall on one side or the other on so many issues. We polarize. Neither one is honoring to God. Either because of the sake of truth, we devastate people. We just blow right through them because it's right. It's right. It's right. And we just eat everybody alive. Or because of our squishy love, we compromise truth. When will we mature to slide back towards the middle? I will tell you this. There's no better person to answer that question. Then my friend Micah, and he will close us out after our prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes to that which we need from you, that which we need to do for others, the allowances, the restrictions, the limitations that, Lord, you placed on us is not everybody else's mail. And yet at the same time, Father, we are hurting each other And a lot of times in ignorance, and I pray that you would renew us, change our hearts, let love drive us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I will close with this. Micah needs to get out to his table right after the time after he shares. If you could walk, uh, allow him to get on out to his table and make sure that he is encouraged. Truth without humility is not the truth of God. Sacrificing your rights is not sacrificing your rightness. Truth and love are never at odds. If you have made them to be, repent and walk in love. Go in peace.